Hello and welcome to the first Romaniacs of April, following the longest march since Chairman Mao. Is anybody else tired of living through two significant periods of history, one after the other? Can we have a period of boring news? <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. Joining me down the line this week are two of our regulars. Ros Taylor is an editor over at the LSE's Brexit blog. Hi, Ros. Hello. Uh, so Victor Orban has unsurprisingly won the competition to be the first European leader to hit the big red button labelled full dictatorship <laughs> by suspending Parliament and all elections and other such bothersome distractions. Um, the Washington Post says coronavirus has killed its first democracy. Can the EU in the current uh, circumstances do anything about this? It's surely the kind of government that the European project and its uh, various rules was designed to avoid. Uh, no, it can't, um, fundamentally, because it's got too much on its plate to worry about Hungary right now. I think once this crisis is over, I hope that Ursula von der Leyen will actually crack down a bit and do something more than the mealy-mouthed statement that she came up with this week, which, you know, barely, barely condemned uh, Orban at all. But, I mean, Orban has been very good at this. He's been changing laws for a long time that work to his advantage. These laws tend to have indirect consequences of which he is fully aware, which will harm the things he wants to harm. So when it comes to rule of the law in the country, of course, he's always on the right side. But the question is then, what do you... Uh, how do you match that up or try to match that up to the EU standards for what a democracy ought to be? And it is falling more and more behind. And I mean, Orban was an obvious uh, candidate there. Uh, do you expect to see um, wh which other countries inside or outside of Europe um, do you expect to exploit the crisis in this way? Uh, I would expect Poland to take a bit of advantage of it because it's been going in that direction already. Possibly Bulgaria. Bulgaria's freedom of speech in terms of media freedom is very poor at the moment. And that's been a concern of the EU's. So it's Central Europe that I would worry about the most at the moment. But it's worth pointing out that, yes, he suspended Parliament in all elections. We've suspended Parliament and uh, we're not going to have elections until May 2021. The thing that's different there is, of course, he's done it indefinitely. And Boris Johnson wanted initially with the coronavirus bill to do it for two years. And he was beaten back down to six months, which I think was a very good thing. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk, joining us for the first time since Doritos Lasagna Gate. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> for, which, for which I've now reported him to the police. <laughs> I mean, bear in mind, look, I just put mashed potato in my lunch sandwich. So the, the list of crimes is growing by the day out here. We can only hope that this, this period, the emergency period comes to an end very soon. <laughs> um, his, his book, How to Be a Liberal, uh, much like liberalism itself, has been postponed to September. You can still pre-order it. Hello, Ian. Uh, there's a cheery New Statesman cover suggesting that coronavirus could bring down the liberal world order. Um, when I was writing my Orwell book, I had to keep tweaking the final chapter to accommodate the latest shenanigans from Trump. Is your conclusion uh, also a work in progress? <laughs> well, no, I mean, not really, because I, I don't really get that front page, because I, I was under the impression, the quite strong impression, that the liberal world order was already being brought down in quite a, in quite a sort of vicious way. And our job was to repair it. So I think what what's happening now is way too early to come to political conclusions. But you look around and most of the sort of subtle aspects of the different forms of nationalism are already coming to the fore. So, for instance, like you look at Orban. I mean, Orban is the classic example. And it would surprise no one to think that he has gone further than most, although it's intriguing that he's not, his usual tactic is to salami slice away in, with plausible deniability the manner in which he does things. He hasn't done that here. Trump, you know, it wouldn't surprise anyone to learn that Trump, you know, has tried to race, has desperately tried to racialize the crisis, but calling it, you know, the, the Chinese virus and, and all of that. And it probably wouldn't surprise anyone either that Boris Johnson, whose, man, whose political success has rested on being able to harness, uh, harness nationalist sentiment, has actually been quite different in this respect. And you sort of get that impression of how little he really believes in it or anything else, frankly, by the manner in which he's conducted himself over it. So most of the things that we've seen so far broadly coincide with the sort of attitudes you would expect from those guys. But it's still way, way too early to say how it's all going to pan out. So in other words, no, that final paragraph, that there is a good chance I'll rewrite that. <laughs> but, but not yet. Give me, give me a couple of months. 
Um, well, over here, um, Derbyshire police were using drones to catch people ignoring the lockdown in the Peak District. They were obviously very excited about their new powers. Um, but there was, a, there was a big public backlash, and they did seem to be outliers. Is that an encouraging uh, sign that, um, you know, that the, 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 the public at large is quite uh, mindful of its civil liberties, and, and, and then just, they're not just going to sort of lie down and take the drones? Yeah, I think that there is some of that. And I, and I think actually that the political class are, are generally much more politically literate when it comes to threats from the state to liberty than they are to threats to liberty from society itself, from the tyranny of the majority. And in this case, it's proving quite helpful so far. So much of what's going to happen on this is about social norms. The, the, the extent of the executive powers are, even though they're sort of overstepping them, still very, very strong indeed. And a lot of the way that the police behave will be dependent on the way that politicians respond to them, that prominent journalists talk about them and the public do, which is why, and you sort of get it, you see quite a bit of it on Twitter, of of people starting to go, well, look, hang on, don't question the police right now. They're out there risking themselves in public. You're just at home. You don't have the right. We need strong leadership now. And that is exactly the opposite of the way that we should be behaving. The way to behave right now is thinking the state is taking a lot of powers and that will only work if we exercise very, very disciplined scrutiny of the things that they are doing and try to make sure that they do not overstep the mark. Our guest this week is James Frith, MP for Bury North between 2017 and 2019. Bury North is a notorious swing seat 2019 election. It was lost to the Tories by a mere 105 votes. Father of four young children, James said in December he was looking forward to having time to take his daughter to drama and his son to football. Sadly, a pandemic intervened, uh, but we, <laughs> we hope he's still enjoying some family time. Hello, James. Welcome. Hello, yes, uh, I am, although um, recording this podcast is a great opportunity to have the house to myself, which uh, at this moment is, um, is a very, uh, um, well, very, co- very rare experience and very much uh, sought after by both my wife and I. So great to be with you. Um, and how 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 is your how are you doing in your new job as as headmaster of St Frith's Home School? Yeah, it, it, indeed. Um, well, as somebody that spent most of my school time in the headmaster's office, um, I'm I'm quite accustomed to that environment. So it, it does feel strange uh, going through maths homework with my eldest two, and just feeling how how uh, not so long ago it feels still uh, to be the one stood next to my dad as he went back over the simple sums that I'd got wrong. Um, fortunately, nowadays, you're allowed to use things like computer, um, calculators to check work. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not humiliating myself when I'm unable to do SATS-level maths uh, um, in the, or long division uh, in an instant. So, uh, no, it's going, it's going okay. Um, my, my son yesterday rolled himself up in my yoga mat um uh in what otherwise would have been double english i think um so there are there are some inconsistencies with what with what if ofsted turned up they would approve um approve of but i reckon they're getting uh they're getting plenty of exercise they're not feeling particularly anxious or burdened by the situation and they are doing a bit of work so that's uh, good. We're, stri- we're striking a balance um now you've got a musical background um in in the band's uh, finker and the Fusiliers, yes. and in fact, you yes. played Glastonbury uh, yes. with Finca. So, Jimmy, you know, you you've got some kind of understanding of, I mean, of what it means not just for Glastonbury to be cancelled, but for those kind of smaller venues on the indie circuit mm-hmm. that, that really they don't have the kind of um, the kind of financial cushion that, that the O2 might have, for example. Do you do you sort of worry about that that sort of infrastructure uh, not surviving this? Absolutely, I do. Um, my heart goes out to the self-employed musicians, um, and actually, where before this pandemic, the concerns for Brexit were um, over things like the musician's passport and what the intellectual property laws are going to look like with a US trade deal. Suddenly, their very existence is under threat, not just the terms of of, of work. So, um, it's a huge it's a huge concern uh, to me. Uh, you don't have to spend too long getting to know me before I eventually tell you that I played at Glastonbury Festival in 2003. <laughs> and I, I make the point of saying Saturday at 11 o'clock, which um, friends closer to me will make the point of saying 11am, not 
not 11 p.m., which is, <laughs> of course, the more prestigious, the more prestigious slot. Um, good year, but, though. Good uh, hot year. I, I, I mean, I'm, um, actually, m- music is a great tonic for this isolation, and I'm enjoying, um, I'm enjoying uh, discovering new music and uh, consuming it and sending it out to people as as, as recommendations. Um, and working through your hobbies one by one, uh, you've spoken passionately yeah. about Barry FC, um, yeah. who expelled yeah. from the Football League because of the financial situation last year. Uh, I mean, similarly, like we we're saying about the indie venues, um, do you worry that many small clubs could go the same way? And do you think that there needs to be a little bit of, um, I don't know, football socialism uh, with, with mm. bigger clubs mm. kind of stepping in to try and support them? 100%, yeah. I mean, they're, they're ne- that needs to happen irrespective of the current crisis, frankly. The FL needs reconstituting with a national um, regulator. Uh, and quite literally, the expense of towns like Bury Football Club are um, in the shadows and are forfeited um, their success because of the uh, proximity to city clubs. Quite literally, Manchester City, Manchester United, the Premier League and the success of that league competes with towns and football clubs like Bury Football Club. In reality, there were a, there were a number of agents at play here. Um, a, uh, a corrupt pr- prior owner and um, and uh, an insufficiently funded and fairly useless uh, current owner, as well as uh, a pretty useless EFL who were found sleeping um, on the job. Essentially, they they presided over the transfer of ownership of a football club and then didn't ask to see proof of funds until the season was underway and a promotion was secured, and they then penalised the club and the fans of the town. Mm. Um, so it's a it's an absolute mess, but it is um, it, there. There is quite a lot of read across from how towns like mine voted for Brexit um, with a sense of things that they believe to be important or identify with being taken away from them by a, a, a kind of a, a, a power that feels very distant or very detached from their from their daily lives. This week, coronanomics, how will the virus reshape the global economy? Should the changes to the welfare state be reversed once the virus is beaten, or will Britain emerge into a brave new world of big state interventionism when all this is over? Plus, we'll be talking to James about his time as an MP and his marginal seat test, which he hopes could turn around Labour's fortunes under its brand spanking new leader. That's all after some reminders from Roz. If you're a Patreon backer, you'll be hearing this podcast on Thursday, which means we've got time to remind you not to miss our free live video stream this evening. We were so looking forward to Romaniacs versus the Bunker at the Leicester Square Theatre, but then, well, you know what happened. So we've arranged a live stream with some of the panel on Zoom tonight, Thursday, at a little past eight o'clock, right after the national round of applause for the NHS. Hang out of your window, bang your pans, cheer our NHS heroes, and then come inside to catch up on the doubtless monumental events of the next 24 hours. We'll be answering some of your questions too. It'll be much better than sneaking into Boris Johnson's number 10 Zoom conference. It's open to everyone and you can find the invitation and login details on our Patreon page. Just search Patreon Romaniacs. We are hugely appreciative of our Patreon backers, the long-standing supporters, as well as the many new people who continue to sign up. And especially so now that money is becoming so tight. Many, many thanks. We can't do this without you and we are very grateful to every one of you. Thanks, Roz. First up this week, we're taking stock of the government's efforts to support people and businesses affected by the coronavirus pandemic. The markets are fluctuating like Nigel Farage's heart monitor when he hears that his ventilator was made in China. And we're now on track for a larger recession than in 2008. Meanwhile, the UK still refuses to contemplate extending its transition period out of the EU. Ian, how are all these national quarantines, borders closing and so on, and and huge change in demand affecting trade is is anything behaving normally or is this the kind of event that that, that sort of changes every kind of trade yeah i mean well, there's going to be certain areas that are obviously sort of you know doing better so you know supplies to people's homes and you know i i guess the soap industry is doing very well at the moment um but for the vast majority of stuff i mean everything is closing down the world is essentially on lockdown um, and the question is, what happens when we start coming out of this? And that probably won't be in a big bang, right? I mean, it's going to happen fairly slowly. And we presume it'll happen within societies as the result of testing, where people are found to you know, be immune and off they go, they can go back to work. So it'll be quite a slow build back. And you have to, you don't want to be alarmist, okay? But you have to look at it and think, 
you know, you take you take sort of Donald Trump versus China, for instance. I mean, he's always hated China. He's he's inconsistent on almost everything in his life. You know, immigration, gay rights, almost everything, apart from trade. I mean, he's always really, really hated China and Japan on trade. I think he built it in the sort of seventies and eighties. This view on on the you know when sort of lots of man, the manufacturing sectors in the U.S. partly because of the rise in interest rates under Volcker, but also because they were simply more competitive, sort of going over to to Asia. And in that basis, you know, when things are poorer, when people are struggling more, when there is more fear and um, scarcity around, in what way would he respond if he is still in power? And I think the answer to that is pretty clear. I mean, we, we understand the manner in which he'll respond to that. So, it, it, you know, we don't know. It could go either way. But you'd have to be a very, very optimistic person indeed to think that this situation wouldn't play into a, to even more sort of animosity and aggression in trade policy. What sort of changes to the nature of work do you expect to see? A lot of people now acclimatized to working at home. Um, there's some talk of, you know, that even some, you know, offices will be will be shrunk because they think, oh, we don't, we actually don't need everybody here. Um, so perhaps some companies will turn to accelerate their turn to automation. Um, do you think that the kind of that that a lot of the sort of long term changes we're seeing in the world of work will be sped up? Well, I mean, it, I think surely. I mean, health warning on all of this. In fact, everything that anyone is saying on any subject during this period should have a health warning because no one knows what the fuck is going on. But it seems to me that there's a difference between the technology and the cultural side, right? So culturally, in terms of homeworking, you're having a sort of an exhibition right now of just how easy that is for many jobs, not all, but for many jobs to do. And that might lead to a more informal understanding of how people work uh, remotely. In terms of technology, I, I would have thought it's the opposite, because even though you could say about an employer, sure, wouldn't it be easier if it was all automatic because the machines don't get sick? They are not going to be in a position to invest in capital goods I would suspect for a very, very long time, if this thing is half as economically damaging as it looks to be. And on that basis, I would have thought that these these things won't go in necessarily the same direction. Well, yeah, when, when reading about, uh, doing some research into automation, you know, one of the major um, factors that kind of slows down that shift is when workers are cheaper. I think car washing, car washes are the classic example. It's cheaper to hire people to wash a car than to build uh, an automated car wash and i wonder here with kind of the you know what, what what's going to happen to the labor market that in a lot of places um it, it just might be more efficient in coldly capitalist terms uh to use people than like you said to invest in mass automation yeah yeah um Roz, do you think people will return to their old spending habits by and large when they leave lockdown or could this be a killer blow for parts of the high street which is already struggling you know is it, is it just going to be amazon wins everything i think there will be a big effort on the part of a lot of people to use their local businesses and a big drive towards that and you may well see the government in particular trying to urge us to buy british and buy local so that may not mean the same boom for amazon i think more generally it there will be a brief boom once we come out of lockdown and people think oh my god oh my god i want to go out from home i want to go i want to go mad and then they will take another look they will realize that they maybe cannot afford to do this for very long because they've just taken a pay cut or maybe they've been made unemployed and in any case the shops that will really suffer will be anything selling luxury goods, basically, and anything that is inessential. And I think we may well see those see those go under first. In fact, you're already seeing a little bit trends towards that. I mean, you're seeing businesses that were already weak, like Carluccio's, that were already in trouble. I would expect Pizza Express to be next to uh, you're seeing those close down. And that trend will continue and we'll carry on hearing in the weeks and months more and more businesses going under, unfortunately. What would you uh, put in the sort of first post-virus budget when it's not about sustaining things when they're kind of in deep freeze, but, but boosting them when they're actually back in business? Would that be like a, you know, a cut in VAT, for example, or I'm not sure I would cut VAT because it's actually quite a regressive tax. It's not the most regressive tax, but it's it's not as good in terms of levelling up, which, of course, is what the government wants to do as income tax. With income tax, you can vary the tax bands, you can vary the amounts, you can be much fairer if you want to be fairer, if that's what you want. 
And so taxes will have to rise undoubtedly, but with income tax, you can do that in reasonably intelligent ways, which hurt people a bit less. James, the government has rolled out the largest social welfare initiatives in our lifetime. Um, and, and obviously for a very specific reason. But do you think this will mark a permanent change in what people expect from the state? A lot of the time the Tories tell people, look, you know, the, you, you can't just have free stuff. The money isn't there. But everyone can see that the government can find vast sums of money, if only temporarily, when it has to. Mm. I, I certainly think it's changed people's expectations for good. Um, and also it's proven that governments of any colour can be radical with big ideas if the political will matches the the moment. And um, to have so soon after um, the kind of magic money tree in 17 and then the, the kind of threat uh, level being um, raised for the, uh, the, the, the manifesto, the Labour Party manifesto, this idea that big spending and, and infrastructure spend um, was going to bankrupt the economy. I think we've got a situation now where the Conservatives, to be fair to Rishi Sunak, I think he he's understood the moment. I think furlough is a is a big game changer. I think it allows for the return of um, of the economy um, when the time is right. Uh, I think there will be tax rises, uh, but I think there'll also be, as as he's indicated, um, a greater parity between employed and self employed in terms of the um, income tax and national insurance that um, is paid between the two. But certainly from a political point of view, it's going to be very hard for the government to suddenly say um, that 2025 should be continue to be the objective to end rough sleeping when over the weekend local authorities were ordered to deal with rough sleeping in an instant. So... Um, and, and actually, some of that is, I mean, it's not, it's not a time for celebration, but some of it is actually a welcome challenge to the status quo if, um, if you consider that some of the impatience required to change the way we live on environmental, on work conditions, on travel to work uh, situation, or indeed the benefit of um, being reminded how important family time is, and, and that's something that I've, I'm, I'm experiencing myself. Um, there will be a kind of upside to this crisis um, that, that forces us to negotiate or forces us to confront the change that we need, um, not least because of how futile things will feel to go back to sitting on the M60 or the M25 to travel to work, to have the call um, with your boss that you've been having uh, throughout this time. And I think that, you know, I think that that will force some necessary change that will that will bring some welcome innovation to our economy and indeed to the political expectations that, uh, that our politics um, uh, performs within. If we're going to achieve something right now with this period, at the moment it's a state of shock, but soon enough there will be some kind of political discussion about what is happening. We have to be clear about what is actually happening. What are the decisions that are being made? Now, it's not rare in the past for right-wing politicians to spend huge amounts of money. I mean, Reagan did it, built up a huge deficit. You see the same thing from the Republicans, actually under Bush as well, over and over, that Clinton had to fix. And then, once they're in opposition, the right usually swings around and starts acting like it's really desperately concerned about, you know, fiscal discipline and some kind of restraint there, and there needs to be austerity. Now, the key thing now is to start talking realistically about what it is for us to spend money as government. And, the, and that involves us stopping with this magic money tree thing, because the reality is there is a money tree, and it is not magic. It is not a complicated thing for us to understand and just say there are consequences to spending the money but that does not necessarily mean that it isn't sensible to spend it when you need to be spending it especially when there is a lack of demand in the economy and if we have that conversation we might be slightly more defended about what the right would do in future rather than laying ourselves open to the attack that will come in five ten years i think that's right i think the um uh, the, the, the fact that we've also got a, a Tory government in uh, which has added its um, its political capital with the last general election with a, a seat increase, um, how on earth they will turn round and, and pitch to a public that is already austerity uh, tired or fatigued from austerity, fatigued from Brexit, fatigued from coronavirus, and then say, now we need 
you know, austerity that's just gone will look like uh, will look like all your Christmases compared to what's coming now. And I think um, th- there won't be an economic or political will or appetite for that, not least because in Johnson, um, uh, you've got somebody that wants to be liked. And I don't think he's going, he, he will prefer to come out of this. The challenge I think will be for him that, that, that he doesn't become a sort of, in the Churchillian sense, is thanks for winning the war. But then, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Kia Attlee uh, or Sir Kia Attlee comes in and takes and says, we've got it from here. And I think that's where, I mean, there's an interesting, um, an interesting dilemma for the Labour Party and for me in the Labour Party as to how on earth we find our our space to occupy and give an alternative to if actually the Tories are going to occupy uh, spending, investment, levelling up, equality of opportunity, the North, etc, etc. Ian, Raphael Bear wrote a very interesting piece in The Guardian uh, running a sort of thought experiment that uh, if right now somebody suggested Brexit, um, endangering supply chains, threatening economic recovery or whatever, you would think it was an absolutely mental idea. I mean, we, we thought that anyway, but it's a, good, it's a good lens to put on it. And yet the transition question seems to have kind of got, got gone quiet a bit, like a, like a band optimistically rescheduling its tour dates for May. Is the government, is the government in denial and, and can it last? Is it just basically leaving it uh, till the last minute? Um, before it, it sort of bows to the inevitable. As ever, we don't know. So the obvious thing, and, and we just can't stop this fucking instinct in us, right, to just think, well, to, to sort of project reason onto them when it comes to this issue. And I think we particularly have that now when the government is showing, you know, pretty standard degrees of reason when it comes to dealing with coronavirus. It's not to say that it's been perfect, and it really, really hasn't been perfect. And I think when we come back to it, we're going to think that the inaction of mostly February was potentially catastrophic, but they're still behaving like normal, rational adults, generally speaking. So then you come back to the Brexit issue and you're like, well, presumably this is just a bluff, right? But we have thought that many times before over the last three, four years. We've sat there thinking that must be a bluff. You must know that what you're saying right now is catastrophically insane. And when it's come down to it, that is not what it was. It often was not a bluff. They often saw it through. And like, you listen to them now, like even this week, you know, when they're asked about the extension issue, they're saying the same old boilerplate dog shit, which is basically to say, oh, you know, we can't, it's, it's in law, we can't change the date and we'll get it done this year. Now, they definitely won't get it done this year. The, the two negotiators have coronavirus, unable to, to negotiate with each other. And, you know, we struggle to do podcasts on Zoom. So I don't know quite how you're going to have like a system level negotiation of two countries' trading relationships on Zoom. That doesn't seem doable. But I just don't have the faith to say that they're going to back away from the abyss because everything that we've seen about their behavior on this issue, if not the others, would indicate that they are quite as insane as they try to make themselves out to be. You also have to watch out for, I think, a new danger which has come along. As Ian has said, it would be the rational thing now for them to press pause at the very least. But we have to watch out for the narrative that says, it's all so bad anyway. It's appalling. What's Brexit going to be compared with the impact of the coronavirus? We might as well go ahead and do it. And there will be that impulse. And it's, it's, a, it's a suicidal impulse, but there will be that impulse that says, we've seen the worst now. What's Brexit? What, what can Brexit be now we've lived through this? And we have to go be on our guard against that. Um, James, there's, uh, Michael Gove claimed that um, chemical companies weren't able to provide the, um, the necessary chemicals for COVID-19 testing kits. The industry then responded that it, it hadn't been asked, which sort of echoed um, the kind of confusion or dishonesty around the, the EU scheme to bulk buy ventilators, where the government claimed it, it didn't get the email, but now it turns out it was discussed with, uh, back in January. Are these things likely to become scandals or is there a kind of craving on a lot of people's part for the government to be doing the right thing? This is not a time that perhaps you can kind of, that you would sort of celebrate um, scandal in a way that you... No, and and actually uh, earlier than that as well was the uh, Matt Hancock on Question Time proclaiming that they were in talks with the supermarkets who then also said, uh, no, you're not. Um, And I agree with the the comment that February seems like a hell of a waste 
of a month um, when we look at what was done in March. Um, I, I think there is a there is a consistency of approach here. I think the government prefers to be confident in what it says, even if it proves to then be wrong, rather than accept in the in the time. Um, that they haven't done that yet or that it's underway or that it's difficult. Um, and actually, I think, I mean, Alistair Campbell's written very well on this. What we need in a crisis is clarity of communication, which should include an honest assessment of where they haven't done enough yet, but what they are doing to resolve it. And I think whether it's Gove, Johnson or Hancock, uh, to use those examples, they are, they're readier to be confidently wrong than, than accepting what they haven't um, what they haven't done in real time. So sort of confidently state something that then turns out to be wrong is what, is what I'm saying. Um, and I don't think that's acceptable. Of course, whilst everything's at 100 miles an hour and um, even with an op- opposition from Saturday, um, it's going to be quite difficult to start to throw political barbs in, in, in an attempt to, to scrutinise the government um, because people, I think the general public are still of a view that actually this needs to, you know, we need to rally behind. Uh, and I've certainly picked some of that up in my communications in my own seat where I've offered uh, thoughts or comment or um, ideas um, that are then sort of by, by some um, rebuked as, you know, well, right, you're, why are you making politics of this? And actually, it's not poli- Well, it's politics in as far as it's a politician making a suggestion, but it's not it's not poo pooing things. It's trying to be constructive. Um, and I think it's a really difficult uh, line to tread for, for the Labour Party, not least because the, the Tories are spending so much money as well. And finally, Roz, Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, diagnosed with COVID-19. Dominic Cummings, who was filmed literally running away from number 10 this week, subsequently self-isolated. Um, who do you get the impression is steering the ship right now? And, uh, please don't say Dominic Raab. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's tempting. But no, I don't think it is Dominic Raab. I think actually it's likely to be Michael Gove. Does that make you feel any better? It does slightly, yeah. Yeah, a little bit, actually. A little bit. Yeah, Yeah, because I I think uh, you saw yesterday him uh, doing the daily coronavirus news conference. And I think um, while he's doubtless been waiting for this moment for some time, uh, he's probably the one. It's it's Gove o'clock, isn't it? It's it's, it's Gove o'clock. And... um, (laughs) Uh, let's let's <laughs> yeah that's it he could be it's like you can't spell government without go <laughs> yeah i can totally see him getting behind that it's interesting that you i mean the, the man who said we had enough of experts and you notice the word expert is not being used when it's it's all about scientific advice and yet you know you've got both medical and science and uh, banking uh, sectors, chemistry, you know, a whole, whole host of experts, but everything is caught up in, in the term scientific advice because they don't start referring back to experts being back in, <laughs> in play. Now for our segment, To the Barricades, where one of our panel assembles a mass demonstration via Zoom for their chosen cause. This week, it's Ian's turn. Ian, rally us. I mean, okay, so it seems to me like there is a capacity now to try to undo or minimise some of the damage that's happening to your community. And everyone, I know this might be a bit of a London thing to say, but sort of you you carry around your own sense of community in a way. The restaurants that you go to, the pubs that you go to, the shops that you go to every week, the magazines that you buy, all of that is on the life support table right now. And you can sit down and just think, what can I do to make sure that the things that I love in my normal life will still be alive when this thing is over? That involves, I mean, for a bunch of, I'm taking out a lot of magazine subscriptions for magazines, which I frankly don't think I'm ever going to be able to read. But it's just like, these guys need help right now and you can provide it but as a consumer and still get stuff that you actually might want the same with for me with comics are just desperately trying to keep your local comic shop open because they're completely screwed right now and then thinking about um your local restaurants and pubs if they're even still if you can even communicate with them right now if they're doing anything that allows you to get meals delivered from them 
or if you can get vouchers from them. And it's worth emailing and just saying, look, if you're doing a voucher thing, I, I will do them now. And, I, and just to think to yourself, how much do I spend in that pub every week? I can give them that now. And it's just free, you know, free drinks later on for me to just try to give them some kind of liquidity to keep them going at the moment. And if you're, we're, we're all fucking bored and we're all quite powerless as to what is happening around us at the moment. You do have some power there to think about where are the places, in addition to any charitable stuff you do, that you genuinely love and what can you do to help? I mean, I'm afraid, yeah, that my To The Barricades is obviously basically just go down the virtual pub and buy virtual comics. But nevertheless, that's at the moment, that's kind of all there is to offer Next, the Labour leadership race began way back in the mists of time when all we had to worry about was the triumph of Brexit and a Tory landslide, traumas you could at least medicate with friends in the pub. By Saturday, we'll finally know what most of the country has assumed since December, that Keir Starmer will begin leading the opposition in the middle of a historic emergency. Um, Ian, to start with you, has the contest changed anything significant for you? Have certain people enhanced their reputation? Have some sort of valuable ideas been aired? Well, I, I mean, A, there, there really hasn't been any contest that I don't think anyone's noticed any part of it uh, for the last month um, but it had been going on long enough really uh, until then and nothing and nothing really changed that we didn't already know in the first week right like Keir Starmer playing a canny but not particularly you know thrilling game of trying to be as inoffensive to as many people as possible um, in order to shore up that front runner status um, Rebecca Long-Bailey being very very tedious indeed and bringing people around her who Reflected some of the worst sort of, you know, communication strategies of the Corbyn period about fake news. Most of her followers online being extremely abusive when they had the chance to. And Lisa Nandy being thoughtful and interesting. And I think probably the most dynamic of the candidates, but not in my experience with most of the people that I've spoken to quite going far enough to to make people veer off Starmer as probably the most sort of safe choice Looking, looking for the future. So at the moment, we really, I, I would say, if we go back to the sort of recordings that we did the, the first week of the contest, first couple of weeks, I don't think anything's really changed from that period in any meaningful way. James, you won um, and lost your seat under Corbyn in those two very different elections, 2017, 2019. Um, now that you can kind of, you know, speak freely, what did you, how do you think history will judge the Corbyn years. Obviously, there was the, the rise in membership, which is unarguable. Uh, the, the surprise sort of mid-season twist in 2017. Um, but were there any, apart from those, were there any sort of lasting gains apart from a lot more members? I, I do think he, he flushed out a, a, a creeping technocratic or technical exercise that was... Um, debilitating the Labour Party's ability to speak clearly, simply, in anti-austerity terms at the time. And I think that might be the only credit I would give him in terms of having a clear-throated opposition to austerity at a time when the Labour Party was saying Labour's version of austerity, Labour's version of a punch in the mouth will hurt you less, therefore uh, vote for us. Um, I think also the 2017 election, um, uh, whilst it built on the confidence that some Labour voters had to vote for the Labour Party in 2017 that didn't exist in 15, um, we can't underestimate how profoundly awful a campaign Theresa May had and how the dementia tax played out so strongly on the doorsteps of people who could afford perhaps uh, to lend their vote to the Labour Party, as I think is what happened in 2017. I was going to say, I remember, I remember watching the, the, the most recent election night, um, and you had MPs like Ruth Smith was sort of plainly furious on the night. Um, how did you feel? I um, mean, you said, you, you, you know, Barry North is a marginal. Um, it was a tricky seat to, to sort of hold, tricky seat to win. Um, can go either way. How did you feel about the leadership and the campaign uh, on, on the night? Right up until 4am, which was an hour before the eventual result in Bury North, um, I thought we would just about get through and, and to lose by 0.2%, I think that that'll give you a sense of how, how close it, it was, 105 votes, as you've said, in a seat that usually indicated which way the country was going. 
um, we we share a we share a motorway exit with a with a town that in Burnley that, that almost that's got its first Tory MP um, since 1910. So to come as close as we did was was a kind of was cold comfort, but it was a degree of an it was an insight into the campaign we'd run, which was deliberately localized, deliberately about keeping what we've got deliberately about um, uh, keeping the faith in, in me and the work that I'd done in two and a half uh, short years as the MP. My my reconciliation on the leadership had happened um, some time before then, which was why I, I, I framed the, the campaign in the way that I did um, in, in Bury North. But yeah, I am pretty angry. And I, I think this, the, 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 the uh, marginal seat test that uh, I've challenged the leader's uh, the candidate um, for the leadership, the candidates for the leadership on, is part of that anger, but it's trying to be constructive about the future because it strikes me that the the very people who were so confident in our success have gone back to their soundproof constituencies and have not been on the doorstep in a marginal seat that frames the electoral system that we have in this country and made the argument, made the case, interrupted parents at bath time for the kids or, or dinner time for the family and said, oh, actually, no, what we actually need is the or the renationalisation of absolutely everything or free, and free broadband. Because t- telling people um, uh, that are struggling to make ends meet that you can have anything you want for free just doesn't, it doesn't wash. People are smarter than that. Um, people understand uh, the difficulties of these things. And I, I, I just, in recent years, we've been uh, led by a whole number of people for whom pointing at poverty for the sake of gala dinner speeches or conference hall or indeed debates where they throw out barbs about Tories and how much we hate them um, and how evil they are, um, without ever then committing to the work required to actually become an effective opposition and then an alternative government, given the permission to govern by the people you seek to represent. And that is the frustration and anger that I still have about the Labour Party's indulgent operation these, these last years. And um, who took up the challenge to come to Bury uh, and do this marginal seat test? Well, it, it, it was it was very it was you know pretty successful. I think we had Jess Phillips very early on day one of the campaign. She she launched on the Friday night. She was there. She was with us on the Saturday. We had uh, Kia then uh, thereafter uh, as well. Kia's now been to Bury three times. Uh, Lisa Nandy, um, uh, who has been several times, not least because I was her uh, mother's member of parliament, and she she spent some of her life living in Bury. Um, and is very well known to these parts. Um, we did have Rebecca down, Rebecca Long Bailey down to attend, uh, but um, her team, having booked and reconfirmed it twice, then pulled out a week to go because it clashed with the hustings that had been in the diary for some months, um, which is frustrating. We didn't then get a suggested alternative date. Um, uh, in terms of um, uh, deputies, we've had Angela Rayner, we've had Ian Murray. Um, and Rosanna was down, as was Emily, actually. Emily Thornbury was down uh, to come. Emily didn't get on the ballot, so didn't. And Rosanna was down to, to come at the end of March. But obviously that got pushed because of mm. the, the coronavirus. So it, it, it captured people's <coughs> imaginations. It's got quite a bit of national um, uh, attention um, because I think people understand it. Um, people understand that seats like these need to be won if you want to be in government. Um, and I think it's quite interesting that that those nearest to Bury North, um, Rebecca is a Salford MP, didn't visit. She was actually twinned with Bury North in the general election and, and didn't didn't come once. Um, and so, you know, she hasn't passed the marginal seat test for sure. Well, what does the what does that test and, and your own experience on, on the doorstep uh, tell you about? what Labour needs to do to win back voters lost to the Tories. I mean, presumably some of them, you know, it's been a long-term shift. Some of them perhaps could be lost for, for good. But um, the, the ones that you can win back, what kind of messages will do that trick? Look, I think we've got to, we've got to recognise there is a, an opportunity to embrace English uh, Englishness, English identity, reclaim it from nationalism, um, and and rebadge it as patriotism and, and and redefine it and and actually some of the conversations with Bury Football Club fans um, you know informed much of my thinking about this. This is deeply 
um, held identity and towns and townships are a, a deeply is a deeply held identity. It shouldn't be enough that we should expect simply to celebrate the, the success of cities. Um, and that towns are sort of subservient to, to that success. Many people that talk about, you know, talk about those things like Englishness and, and, and towns uh, and identity. Um, they often, they over, you know, there's some overlap there with critics of Starmer that just go, well, don't elect the, the person that people associate with the, um, with, with the Brexit policy. What was your experience, like how big a role, and obviously there are ways of doing both, you know, you don't need to, you don't have to equate those things with Brexit. Well, what was your experience campaigning? Um, how big a role did um, did the perception of Labour as being too Remainy uh, play? I think if we'd had a better leader and a clearer position on it sooner, it wouldn't have mattered as much. I know Brexiteers that would have voted, would have held their nose and voted Labour because of a different leader. Um, for me, Brexit was was another of the sort of subheaders. Uh, you know, for me, we get a leader that that can command uh, a perception of being in number ten. Um, then I think that's we're we're halfway there. I think what has happened since, and and again, eternally frustration. Labour Party's ability to frustrate its its members no knows no uh, bounds when. Once again, as per 2010, when we spent what felt like a year doing a leadership contest, I think it was six months, allowing Osborne and Cameron to set the there's no money left narrative and austerity is a necessity. Fast forward now to this point, the, literally the world has moved on. The Labour Party is not in anyone's mind at the moment as, as being, oh, what, what, what do we think they're going to say about this? Um, we're still choosing a leader. And now we've got this situation where we're asking the, the candidates to choose, uh, to record, to pre-record their victory speeches. Um, you know, just everything we're doing at the moment is, um, you know, I, I, if my children, whilst they're being homeschooled, presented me with some of these ideas, I would say they need to be rethought. Um, uh, you know, we really got to up our game again. Um, and I think this is as profound a, ch- a requirement to change as that we saw, um, you know, from from uh, uh, Kinnock and Smith and Blair and on and on uh, until this point, really. And your former colleague, Darren Jones, uh, we had him on the bunker, diplomatically declined to handicap the shadow cabinet runners and riders. Uh, but hopefully you're you're freer to speak your mind. Um, are there any... Uh, Whilst I'm still uh, locked in, her, in my home, I am. Yeah. No one can get you there. Um, they can throw are, things are at me. Sort of they form- can throw things at me from two meters. So. <laughs> <laughs> are there any former backbench colleagues that you would like to see um, on the front bench under a Starmer leadership? So I think uh, two um, uh, two friends of mine, but also two really impressive people that have done um, quite a bit of heavy lifting these last years. Um, Sarah Jones in the housing team is uh, terrific and. Uh, she's a shadow housing minister at the moment, and I hope she will um, get a bigger brief and more responsibility. Um, and uh, and Preet uh, Gill as well, who's a Midlands MP as well. Uh, I think she's fantastic. She's in the international development uh, team. They would be two, I, w- I would hope, as um, 2017 intake. I think to start getting into, you know, the 2010 and 2015 intake as to who who was deserving then of getting something and whether they are now that those are dilemmas for Keir. But I hope, I hope if, if, if in fact it is Keir, um, uh, I hope very much that the 2017, my 2017 peers will uh, get some recognition because there's some really, really strong talent in the, in the ranks there. And can you see yourself running again in 2024? 100%. Yeah. 100%. So we've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit bridge. Uh, The government is big in infrastructure, so we've decided to build a metaphorical channel bridge reconnecting the UK with our friends in Europe. We ask our guests to contribute a new brick each week, uh, representing uh, something optimism and community james frith what would you like to add so one of my big things is is uh, music um i spoke uh, on uh, the issue of musicians passports as both part of the brexit and also the freedom of movement um implications uh, and the trade 
with the US and Europe. I hope very much that we will have a form of freedom of movement for European uh, musicians and indeed our own musicians that then go and cut their teeth by gigging, touring in Europe. Um, the idea uh, that, and this isn't just bands, by the way, it's whole swathes of orchestras and freelancers. And um, I would really hope that uh, that we can use the kind of cultural capital um, and pull at the both the economic and the emotional heartstrings um, uh, with the government to to do something of a musician's passport to to keep that proximity as close as possible. Will you be will you be celebrating the end of lockdown with a, a thinker reunion show? We did. We were actually down to do a Labour Party um, branch meeting, which sounds fantastically exciting, doesn't it? Um, not not quite not quite the same as being on the same bill as Kings of Leon on, in two thousand and three, um, but but um, yeah, very much so. And in fact, we've. Um, We've all been in contact. My guitarist is a hoarder of of stuff, which at the time I thought was just ridiculous. I wish to goodness I'd kept as much of the stuff that he did because he's now got um, really interesting, some very good photos that he's sharing where we're all slimmer, younger, better looking and um, uh, and having a good time. Uh, I just I would love a good night out. My word, I'd love a good night out. <laughs> yeah, I think we're looking forward to that. Well, that's the show. Thanks so much to our guest, James Frith. Uh, to Ian. Cheers, man. Thank you. And to Roz. Thank you. Now it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and some thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me to James Drohan, Jane, Deborah Parrish, Glennis Ingram, hi Glennis, Andrew Reed, Dave Marley, and Anne Rideout. Hello, and thanks from me to Peter Langdon, Samuel On, Catherine Carr, Ayla LaRocha, uh, Rob Anderson, Rob Kampkin, and William Larry. And thanks from me to Kate Grundy, Owen McCarthy, British Taylor, Raoul Lander, Georgia Lewis, Alfie Burkett, and forgive me if I mangle the surname here, Marie-Dominique Othakir. Look after yourselves. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Roz Taylor and Ian Dunn. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.